Welcome to the Audacity Church Podcast. We pray that you are blessed by what you hear today. We love to hear stories of what God is doing in people's lives. Take some time to share your story of how God is working in your life and email us at amen at loveservego.com. Now prepare your heart to hear from God today. If you have your Bibles, turn them to John. We're going to start in chapter 10. And Jesus is speaking. If you have your Bible, you'll see that it's in red letters. And he says this. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered, I have shown many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Let's pray. Father, uh, you are good. In this unique and un- seemingly peculiar invite, you allow us to be grafted in, adopted into your family. You love us, you lead us, you guide us. Father, we want your word to fall on good soil this morning. So we just want to lay aside anything that we're thinking about, maybe a struggle that we're having, and we we just want to be receptive to your words. Father, I pray that you would speak boldly to our hearts. Will you transform us today? Father, don't allow this to be information that leads to nothing, but allow your words to be transformation that lead to life change. We believe this and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Jesus is speaking to some religious leaders. He is, he's talking about himself and Jesus then equates himself to the Father. He's already speaking about God on these intimate terms that are baffling religious people. And then Jesus says this, I and the Father are one. And the religious leaders that are around Jesus decide that the correct response is to gather stones, drag him outside of the city walls, and take stones and crush his head until he dies. That's the response. Make no mistake about it, friends. Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be the Anointed One. In the Hebrew, it's the Mashiach Nagid. There's these prophecies, these foretellings of hundreds of years about this one who would come. It was written down in the common man's language called the Greek 270 years before Jesus ever walks the shores of Galilee. It said where he would be born, how he would teach, and how he would die. His whole life, the script was written 300 years before he shows up on the scene. And when he does, he claims to be God. He says this in John chapter 10, truly, truly, I say to you, who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way? The man is a thief and a robber, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his 
voice. Jesus is boasting here. He's calling himself the good shepherd. Jesus is equating you and I to sheep. Not the smartest animal. To food. There's this dependence upon the shepherd to lead them exactly where they're supposed to go. So many followers of Jesus think they have this ability to string Jesus along like he is the one following them. The way they make the choices with their lives, the way they choose to treat people. And Jesus says, you do not have permission to live your life that way. I am the good shepherd. You are to follow me. And if you are mine, you'll know my voice. You'll hear my voice. And and Kim mentioned it a minute ago. But maybe you're still wrestling with how you pray. Maybe you're still wrestling hearing from God. Friends, I guarantee you, the more time you spend with him, the more clear his voice becomes. He's a good shepherd. He wants to lovingly lead you. And he's never going to lead you astray. Friends, if he leads you to something that seems impossible, a circumstance that's hard to endure, or maybe to a a season of life where you would say, there is no provision. This is dry land you're leading me to. Friend, I promise you, Jesus is saying, no, hey, this is for your good. He's never going to lead you somewhere where he will abandon you. He will never lead you somewhere where he is not walking with you. He will never lead you into something that you do not have the strength to endure. So many people come to Jesus like he's this genie in the bottle. And listen, friends, I understand some of you are here. Some of you have come to audacity. Because of a circumstance, because of a situation. And oftentimes I see God leading people through a circumstance where they are just needing answers. So maybe they're a little bit skeptical about their faith or even if Jesus is really the Son of God. And so they wrestle. Whatever circumstance Jesus is bringing you into his presence so he can say, I am the good shepherd. He wants to lead you. I want you to write this down. Whoever we say Jesus is will determine everything about how we follow him. What does that mean? That means if you don't see Jesus as king and Lord, you won't surrender your life to him. See, if you see Jesus as just something that makes you feel good about yourself, if you see Jesus as just something that makes you moral, you're not following the shepherd. What you're doing is you're equating the sayings of Jesus and you're applying the ones that are comfortable to you. In the West, we're really good at this. I call it a la carte Christianity. I will go through and I will pick and choose what looks good and I'll put that on my plate and I'll carry it through the buffet line. But when I see those peas that tell me I've got to love my neighbor like I love myself and I don't even have any butter on them or sugar or salt or whatever you put on your peas, you just keep on going by. You're not going to put that on the plate. 
And this is how people follow Jesus or how they think they're following Jesus. They're not listening to his voice. They're not applying his truth to their life. And friends, whatever you believe about Jesus will determine how you follow him. Here's the crazy thing. If grace is true, Jesus can ask you to do anything. See, I kind of do wish there was a ladder. I've been a good scorekeeper my whole life. I was raised in the church. I'm thankful for my upbringing. But the thing that it has done is it's basically created a person that thinks that they can behave their way into heaven. They can climb the ladder of achievement in the Christian dome, and they can keep getting little Christian merit badges. And when they get to God, they're going to say, hey, look, man, look at all I did. Girls who do... And God's going to look at all of your good works and everything, and he's going to say, did you follow the shepherd? He's going to look at the ladder, your report card with A+++, and he's going to say, did you love my son? How who you believe Jesus is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things. We read it in the beginning of this book. He is the one that's holding all things together. The word, the logos, remember the Greek word logos, the meaning of life, robes himself in flesh, is born into humanity to die for the sins of this world. It would be like you becoming a cockroach. Maybe even worse. And then trying to convict all, convince all the other cockroaches that you are who you say you are, the creator, the sustainer. God became man so that you would willingly, lovingly follow him. Jesus goes on in John chapter 10 and says, I am the door. See, they're getting riled up because Jesus is calling the religious establishment thief and robbers. I've been around the religious establishment long enough to know that the church sometimes gives people hoops to jump through. Not here. We just want you to fall in love with this Jesus that we have encountered and who's changed our lives, not only how we treat people, but how we see ourselves in relation to God. Jesus says that the religious establishment has become thief and robbers. They try to get people to earn and do and works and that those things somehow equate to salvation. And Jesus says, no, I know who my own are. They're going to follow me. He says, truly, truly, I am the door. Jesus boasts that he is the only way to the Father. Is the only way to eternity. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am making a way. Who you say Jesus is will determine everything about how you choose to follow him. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And so these men gather stones. Jesus is audience would have been familiar with the text, and I really believe that Jesus is trying to point them back to a psalm or a song that would have been so familiar to them. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Jesus is saying, yep, that's me, the good shepherd, the guide, the one who wants to lead you in paths of righteousness the one who wants you to become more holy, the one who's more concerned with your holiness than he is your happiness. And he's constantly working on us to reflect his image to a world that so desperately needs to see the hands, the feet, and the words of Jesus. John chapter 9. I want to set the stage for you to help you understand the context of this story. There's a man who has been born blind. He's lived his life in total darkness. This man wouldn't have even been allowed inside the temple. He would have never heard the songs that were sang to God unless they were sang in his home. He would have never been able to corporately worship with people because he was born in, as the religious leaders described it, utter sin. Anybody that looked upon him wasn't with compassion. It was condemnation and judgment. Surely there's a reason that he's carrying that. Surely there's a reason he was born into sin. Surely there's a reason that God took his sight away and he lives his life in darkness the apostles had been following Jesus and I want you to hear what they asked Jesus the, the question when they see this blind man as they passed by him he saw the blind man who had been blind from birth and John chapter 9 verse 2 says and his disciples asked him rabbi teacher who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind and Jesus answered it was not the sin it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him church God might be letting you walk through something right now and it's so that his works can be displayed through you you might be in some impossible circumstance where you're drowning in fear dead sickness whatever it be might be and God is saying no I'm using that to bring glory to me will you walk faithfully through it the disciples are following Jesus and they don't even get it. Whose fault? The parents? Listen. Whatever you're going through, it ain't your fault. Some of you might have been dumb. I've made some, I'm almost 40. I've done some dumb things, okay? And some things that you're going through, God is wanting to bring himself glory through it. I want you to stay strong. I want you to endure. I want you to be patient and trust. Follow him. Say, you know what? It didn't go the way. I didn't get the promotion. I'm still going to follow you. You didn't restore that relationship. I'm still going to follow you. Religious leaders 
when they find out that a man has been born blind, is now seeing, and it's never been done in recorded history before, they question the man. They bring him in, and they said, hey, bro, what happened? The man's like, I mind my own business. Some dude named Jesus came in. He spit on the ground. Then he rubbed his spit in my eyes. And they're like, really? He goes, yes. And then he just cakes mud. Jesus spit in his face. How cool is that? And then he says, hey, I want you to go and wash in this pool of asylum. Do you know sometimes Jesus is kind of not spit in your face, but he's asked you to do something, and because you still haven't obeyed, you've not received what he's so desperately wanting to give you? You know, there's often times that God has asked us to take a step, to be obedient, whatever it might be. And what we do is we kind of just sit on the outside and be like, man, I don't know, God, I can't see. That's going to be hard. Are you sure you're asking me to do that? And Jesus is like, yeah, spit in your face, but it's because I, I want you to go and receive your sight. The religious leaders are baffled by this, and so they go and they get his parents is this your son? Yes. Was he born blind? Yes. How did he get healed? I don't know. Ask him. Which seems like a weird response, but let me explain this to you. The religious leaders have already said if anybody confessed Jesus as the Christ, they would kick him, they would kick them out of the synagogue. These religious parents whose son has now received sight, a mighty miracle. No one has, it's never happened. And they wanted to cling to their religion instead of being transformed by what Jesus can do. So many Christians are sit in their comfortable pews in their comfortable corner offices, saying, Jesus, this is all that I can give you. I can only trust you with this. Don't take this away. I've been there. I'm like, you want, you want it all? I've been there. Where I got these segments in my heart that carve out these little pockets of sin that I cling to. I've been there where God is moving and performing miracles, and I'm like, well, I kind of earned that. You don't know how hard I worked. I walked to the pool of Siloam. The religious leaders got their underwear in a bind because Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. Now they've went and they've got him. I love this man's response, this is now they've went and they've got him a second time because they don't believe that really what has been claimed is true. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? This dude would have been one of my friends, man. I think followers of Jesus just need a little bit of condescending smart. Elec in them, especially when people push against what God is doing. Let me tell you something, friend. When God starts to move in your life, people around you will push back about what God is doing. They'll tell you, are you sure you're qualified to do that? Are you sure you're equipped to do that? Are you sure God's going to move that way? Are you sure? That sounds like a huge risk. And what they're doing is they're pushing against what God is so desperately wanting to do in your life. Where are we at? Verse 28. And they said to him, 
You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Once again, they want to hold on to what is familiar. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Once again, this man, me and him are going to be homeboys in heaven. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man that's been born blind. If this man were not from God... He could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. Three times a year, all the able-bodied men would head to Jerusalem and worship corporately at these feasts. And I'm sure this man has now received his sight, so we're like, finally going to get to go. I'm finally going to be able to see the temple. I'm finally going to be able to worship God. And they cast him out. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and he found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Write this down. Who we say Jesus is will determine everything about how we worship him. If Jesus who he says he is, he is worthy of all of you. I know the word worship is a church word, and so uh, for those of you that maybe weren't raised in church, maybe don't understand that word, in the English we translated in the Queen's English, the word was actually, we translated it worth-ship. There's a T-H. It's the value of affection, the value of devotion that we will place into an object. And I'm here to tell you today what you say, believe, determine about Jesus will impact everything on how you worship him, how you worship him with your time, how you worship him with your resources, how you worship him in your conversations, how you treat your wife, how you treat your husband, how you treat your kids. Everything is worship. Everything. People say, well, that's secular. No, 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 no. Everything is worship. Everything. How you treat your employees, it's worship. How you treat your boss, it's worship. You're like, I th- worship is what I do for like 28 minutes on a Sunday morning. Oh, no, dear friend. Worship is how you live your life. Worship is how you are devoted to Christ. Worship is how you follow the good shepherd. I thought about this, this guy, like, <laughs> he's kind of got to be bummed out, Right? I mean, his whole life, he can't wait to get into the temple. He can't wait to see, and he finally does see. He's probably bombarded by colors and things that he probably had this image of his head of what it looked like, and then he sees it for the first time, and he's probably thinking, I cannot wait to go and worship in the temple. God just gave me my sight back. And the Bible says that they cast him Maybe you've been a part of a religious establishment that says, 
this is how we worship God. He lives in this box because in this box we feel safe. This is how we worship God in the context of this makes us feel in control. I'm not uh, wasn't raised in this place. I get ex- took off sprinting this morning. And what I felt God moving in this place, I get excited. I can't even keep my heels to the ground. And I have no rhythm. So if I throw you off, you're welcome. That's why Brayson leads the drums. Watch him. Don't watch me. In this moment, we try to confide God. And I love what Jesus did. Jesus said, I get to worship the Creator. He meets him where he is and says, I know that you're not going to be able to go back into the temple. I know that you're not going to be able to see inside the grandness of what man has created. But friend, you get to look at the face of God. And he worshiped him. How are you following Jesus? How are you worshiping What's your devotion? When Jesus steps in, he changes your affections. He changes your perceptions. You know, whatever you're going through, more than likely, it has more to do with perception than it actually does what you're enduring. This past week was our staycation, and really it was a very lengthy honeydew list from my blessed wife of things that I told her that we would do since October, but whenever we started redoing this place in October, it was a, been a very, very long time. Like, oh yeah, I'll get to that when the carpet's down. I'll get to that when the paint's done. I'll get to that. I took a week off to get to that. And all week, my kids worked hard, and I worked hard, and it was, it was a lot of fun. And We planned this one day on Friday to go to Blue Hole. It's basically a hole um, with water in it. And uh, people go there. It's a natural spring. And uh, we were excited about going. On the way there, it began to rain. And I'm like, oh, this is the one day I have off of my vacation. <laughs> what, what is it raining for? I wanted to take my kids and let them have a fun experience. Why is it raining? Ashley, check the weather map, please. Just pull it up on your phone. She goes, honey, it says it'll, it'll be done by noon. We're still driving. She goes, oh, I checked again. It says it's not going to be done until 2. My flesh just wants to turn around. I start to blame God. Like, what is your problem? Why are you letting it rain? My perception was God was ruining my day. I'm giving you something in very simple context so that you can apply this to a much deeper, more important context. We get to the blue hole. We unpack everything. We have an umbrella. We're sitting under the umbrella and it's still closed, and I'm still frustrated. I go sit in my van and to get a drink of water, and I close the door, and I just talk to God. I said, God, what is your deal? I know this isn't a really big deal, but my kids have worked so hard all week long, and I've been trying to, we've been looking forward to this day just to be able to spend and relax and hang out as a family. Why are you letting this happen? And the Holy Spirit said, go and look at the face of your kids. Sometimes I like to ignore the Holy Spirit and just continue to give pushback. I'm like, clearly you have not heard me because now you're trying to tell me what to do. I get out of the van. I go back and I sit in my, this reclining lawn chair that we have. 
And my kids are in this body of water playing, filled with joy, dancing in the rain. Sometimes you have to get wet to experience all that God wants to do in your life. Sometimes you're going to have to let your perception change and realize that the rain isn't ruining the day. Your perception of the rain is what's ruining the day. Will you worship Him in the rain? Will you worship Him in the storms? Will you worship Him in baseball-sized hail, right? Take cover if that happens, but seriously. Will you just worship I'm not closing yet, don't get excited, but I want you to close your eyes, and I'm going to do this because I want you to hear me. I'll tell you when to open them back up, okay? She's young. She is in love. Or maybe she just needs to be loved. So she offers herself to him. She gives herself to him. She trusted him. And so she is intimate with a man that she's not married to. She knew it was wrong. She knew the price of that moment, but in that moment, the consequences disappear and the momentary need of being loved clouds her decision. So here's a young woman who is in love, who is thinking that this moment of sex is going to fulfill her somehow. So she gives herself to him. And then she's caught. Religious men, young and old, come and they grab her. She's not even been able to really get her clothes back on and they grab her. The religious people grabbed her and started to pull her away. One of them is screaming at her, you're getting what's coming to you. The other one is saying, you whore. The other one is saying, you're about to get what's coming. And in this moment of what was, he is afraid. Now she is filled with fear. Now she is filled with shame. She is being drugged through the city. They're screaming at her. They're telling her that she is about to die. She is afraid. She hears one of them say, we're we're taking her to Jesus. He's at the temple. We're going to use her. And they take her to the, they drag her through. I want you to picture this. They're dragging her by her arm. They are her prisoner of shame as they parade her through the town to get her into the temple. Jesus is teaching in the temple. Look up at me. 
Early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Now they said that now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with fingers on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one. And Jesus left alone with the woman before her. Write this down. Who we say Jesus is will determine everything about how we deal with sin. The religious leaders have drugged this woman and now she's kneeling before Jesus filled with shame, regret, fear. She knows what's going to happen next. They're going to take her drag her outside of the city walls and throw stones on her head until she dies. And Jesus kneels down. Now he is the same level as the woman and he begins to write in the dirt. Many people have said he started to write the names of the men that were standing there. Some people were saying Jesus was just doodling. Maybe he was drawing a camel. I don't know. Some people say that Jesus started to write the sins of each of the men that were standing beside Jesus. See, there's a greater sin in this story, and that's the sin of how the religious people treated the person in sin. Friends, if you are a part of this house, we will recklessly, with total abandon, love people no matter where, what, who they are, because we want to be like Jesus. I love that Jesus bows down, kneels down, almost in humility, but I think it's also so he can catch her gaze. One by one, beginning from the oldest to the youngest, the men walked away, dropping their stones as they went away. I really believe, as Jesus is looking at this woman, he just writes the word, forgiven. Jesus says, where are your accusers? Gone said, I, I don't know. They, they're all gone. And Jesus said this, neither do I condemn you. Go now and sin no more. When we have been radically changed by the grace of Jesus, it changes how we treat sinners. We treat people who are far from God. We deal with them in love, in grace, in compassion. 
The church has been filled with people that treat sinners, they give sympathy and empathy. Let me explain this to you. If that's all you have to offer, you've not been transformed by the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. When we have been changed by Jesus, we move from pity, we move from empathy, we move from sympathy, and we move towards compassion. Compassion. That's what grace does. It also changes in the story how we deal with sin in our own life. We take our sin to Jesus. We let him deal with our sin. There's some of you in this house this morning and you feel like a dirty person who just feels like Jesus can't handle all that you've done. There are people in this house this morning who are sick and they feel like there is no cure There are people in this house this morning that have regrets. There are people in this house who are lost and who need a Savior. For every broken person that feels as though they are being held captive by their circumstances or incapable of being forgiven, Jesus reaches down right where you are and says, Not today. You're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You are made new. You are healed. Your past is exactly there. And I've cast those sins as far as the east is from the west. You are not broken. You have just been under construction. I am doing a new thing in your life. See, the cross changes everything. Audacity Church, we exist to seek and find people who are far from God and help them find new life and purpose in Christ. And we will take them dirty, broken, still living in the shambles of their decisions, and we will lead them to a kneeling Savior that says, forgiven. What you believe about Jesus will determine how you treat sin. Pray that this morning that you... Can we pray? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get plugged into the ministry of Audacity or support this ministry financially, you can get more information at loveservego.com.